Okay, so you can go ahead and turn and turn to Matthew chapter two. I'll give you time to get there because I tell lots of stories. So last year, well, I say last year. Technically, now it was two calendar years ago. It was 2014, but it's like only like a little more than a year ago. Um, we went to Disney World, which I was skeptical that it wasn't going to be as good as Universal because I grew up going to Universal. Disney's pretty good, turns out. Turns out it's pretty fun. Um, so the first day that we went to the Magic Kingdom, uh, when you, right, right kind of behind where the Cinderella Castle is, over on the right, they have like this. This is the princess meet and greet section of, of everything. And, and we were going to go at some point. We had, a, we had a return ticket to go back later, but the line was like 10 minutes or 5 minutes or something ludicrously short, which you don't find in the Magic Kingdom. So we're like, hey, let's go ahead and go in here. Ellie had no idea that she was going to get to meet princesses. She hadn't met any princesses yet on the trip. We're early on in the trip, so we're waiting in line, and we're like, we're going to go in here, and we're going to talk to somebody. And she's like, what? What are we going to do? She didn't know that, like, on the other side of that door, she was going to get to meet Cinderella and Rapunzel, right? So, and it was, it was crazy to see the moment, the moment the door opened, we walked in, it was just like she froze a little bit. It's like, who's that? She's like, Cinderella. <laughs> right? And then, and then it's her turn. That, and then Cinderella like walks over, grabs her hand, says, come here, come, sit, come talk to me. And she like, and, and I, I should have brought a few of the pictures. Most of the pictures are all the, the posed stuff at the end. But like, we have this one picture where she's standing there with Cinderella, and Cinderella's talking to her, and she's just like this. I don't know if you know my kid. She doesn't just stand like this. Like ever. Right? But but she was she was she was standing there with with Cinderella. She was standing there with with royalty. <laughs> to her, she is standing there with 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 royalty and and her her attitude changed, her posture changed, her, her mindset changed. Her grandmother and her mother were crying. <laughs> and maybe her father a little bit, but we will talk about, but there's no evidence to support that theory. She acted different when she was in the presence of this person that, that as far as she knows, in her mind at this point, is a very important person. She just walked past her castle. And now she was getting to hang out and meet with her, right? Right, this is her mindset. I am, I am in the presence of royalty. When you think of royalty, what is it that we think of? We're in America. We don't, we don't really associate, we don't like have like a firm grasp on what it's like. We don't, we don't think that way. But, but if, you were, if you were walked into the presence of a king or queen, what would your mindset be like? How might your posture change? How might the way you act change as compared to when you walk into my presence? When you walk into my presence, does your posture change? Why are you laughing? 
right? But seriously, like, like you walk into... Uh, you walk into a friend's house and it's like, it's my friend. Maybe I'll take my shoes off, right? Uh, if you walked into, when you were a kid, if you got to walk, if you got the joy of walking into the principal's office, you probably acted a little bit different than when you walked into your friend's house after school. How differently do you act when you walk into the presence of somebody in authority? Think about walking into your boss's office or, or sometimes, some, for some of us, even walking into your parents' house. I don't feel that way because my parents are lovely. Let the recording show that. Maybe it's like a mentor, somebody that's, that's really been encouraging you to do something and, and, and you know that, that they are concerned for you or they have something hard to say and you're walking into this meeting with them and you're like, this might hurt you. What's your posture like? How does your, how does your attitude change when you walk into their presence? I remember the first time when I was interviewing for the job that I have now, I got to go have a one-on-one sit-down interview with Dr. Nolan at ETSU. You better believe when you go sit in his office, maybe not now, now that I know him a little bit better, but my, my attitude, my posture, like I sat up a little straighter, I was a little bit terrified, probably because he sat down and just did this. But let the recording show that he's a lovely person as well. (laughs) Does your attitude change when you walk into the presence of somebody who has authority over you? If you want to keep your job, if you don't want to end up grounded, if you want to not not get expelled from school... I mean, in times past, if you don't want to get beheaded, you're probably going to treat this person in authority with some respect, and you're probably not going to act the way that I would tend to act just about every other moment of my life, right? You're not going to walk in, hey, what's up, king? How's it going? Right? That, that's, that's not, unless it's Elvis, you're not going to act that cool. How does your posture change when you walk into the presence of Christ? Do we still treat walking into the church? Do we still treat walking into Bible study? Do we still treat it as, you know what, I'm going to kick my shoes off, be relaxed, maybe I'll watch a little TV in the background, maybe I'll get on the Twitter while we're studying. What does that look like? How, how do, you, do you remain exactly as you are? Do you stay in the exact same posture? Do you... Or do you realize that when you are focusing on Christ, when you are just praying, even if it's just a quick prayer before a meal, that you are speaking to a king? Do you associate the idea of king with Christ naturally? And does your posture, does your attitude, does your mindset change when you think about the fact that you are in his presence? If you are saved, he is in you. He is with you wherever you go. Does that affect the way that you act? Do you you realize that you've walked into the presence of somebody really important and you just stand there kind of terrified and silent, waiting to see what he would have you do? Or do you flippantly just kind of walk in, hey, how's it going, man? We're good? Cool. I'm going to go about my business. 
Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read 1 through 12. Jesus is going to get visited by what we would call, in all of our songs, the three wise men, we three kings, whatever it is you want to be. But these guys are going to come up and they're going to, they're going to behave before Jesus the way that one would when they enter the presence of a king. So let's read. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. First of all, let's kind of establish what the kind of political landscape was. So we're talking about this guy named Herod. Who is he? Why is he there? So, basically throughout world history, you get to be the dominant world superpower until somebody else kind of grows up and beats you. Then they get to be the world superpower, and then so on and so forth. So, what we've seen, what we saw kind of through our study in the Old Testament, we didn't touch too much on what was kind of going on in the world in there, but, but you, had, you had the Assyrian Empire who came and took away you know, the northern kingdom of Israel. They were kind of the big superpower for a while. Then, then Babylon kind of overtook them. And then the Persian Empire kind of overtook them. And then during the kind of 400 years in between the two testaments, you had the, the, the Greek Empire kind of took over. And then after that, you had the Roman Empire. Uh, and when the Romans would take over, um, they would leave their own people in charge of different little places. This is kind of who Herod was. Herod was basically the Romans' governor that they left over in charge of this region of their area of dominion. And, and Herod, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting that it mentions in here is that when he was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled. I think what it's talking about there is he actually made it really good for the people who had lots of power in that region. Because, because Israel had rebuilt the temple, but when Herod got there, he was like, I think I can make this thing look a little bit better. And Herod made this overly lavish, huge temple, gold everywhere, um, not to ascribe more glory to God, the God who was served in that temple in Jerusalem, but instead to ascribe more glory to Herod. Look at what I was able to come in and make for you guys. 
And while he was there, he was able to make life really comfortable, again, for the people in charge. He was able to, you know, protect them from the people and the nations around them. He was able to, you know, make their life comfortable. So Herod um, is essentially this really powerful, really wealthy dignitary of the Roman Empire that all of the people of Israel fear because he's in charge and he reports straight back to Rome and if they offend him, basically they've offended Rome and that's not going to work out well for them. So, so a lot of people kind of puffed up Herod's ego a lot just to kind of keep themselves safe. Uh, so, so you have this, this, gov- this dignitary of the Roman government who's just, again, the world superpower. They've taken over everything. They've got all of the power. You're really terrified of anything that they could possibly do. And so this guy's in charge, and, and it says, wise men from the east come and visit him, and they're asking about this king who has been born. Well, Herod recognizes himself as a king. What we're seeing is God does not recognize him as a king. Ultimately, the people of Israel hope that their king is going to come. And as we'll see, the more and more we study Matthew, their hope is that their king is going to rise up and overthrow the Roman government, overthrow this king that's been forced upon them, and they will have a king who will rule over them physically right there in Israel. And we'll talk a whole lot more as we go through the book of Matthew about why that's not the case. But, but when Herod hears there's another king, he's worried for himself. He is worried for his wealth, his power. And when it says all of Jerusalem, I think all of the guys whose pockets are getting lined by Herod because he's coming in and he's bringing in all this Roman money are a little bit troubled too. They don't really want a new king. They're doing okay. Even though it's not necessarily great for the people of Israel, you know, the important people, the, the chief priests and the, and the elders of the city, they're, they're doing okay. Herod's making them happy because he's just kind of throwing money around. So you have these guys who come and say, where is this king? We're here to worship him. And I think the first thing that we need to realize when we hear that is that Jesus was born a king and should be worshipped that way. We should think of him that way. We can't, we, when I say we, I mean like Americans, we don't really like connect to the idea of a king. Uh, In like the UK, they are like obsessed with the idea of royalty. Some people over here are obsessed with the idea of royalty. They think it would be really cool if we had royalty because they really like royalty as well. Because how, how, how widely watched was the royal wedding whenever it was? How many people were getting up at like four in the morning or whatever it was to watch? Look, she's going to be a princess. She's got a pretty dress. Ooh. Right? Like... That, that to us, that, that's as far as our mindset of royalty goes. But, but in a society where you have a king who, who doesn't just make decisions regarding how you're going to run the country, but when a time of war comes, says, you know what, I'm going to lead our troops. I'm going to go and fight for you. The idea of a king provided hope, security, safety, for his people. And we don't, we don't really connect with that. I don't know if it's just because, you know, we elect our leaders and we're like, we're going to elect them and then they're going to, you know, if we need help and protection, they'll send somebody. You know, we don't have the same, we feel our safety, we get to feel our security based on finding our, like, country's identity 
in this ruler, this person who's leading over us. So we're not like in the same mindset, but, but we need to get there. We need to understand the importance of who a king is. Somebody who serves us, protects us, is, is concerned for our well-being in the long run, who's going to fight for us. Because when you're in the presence, and when you're in the presence of a king, and again, I'm just trying to get us in this mindset, your posture changes when you walk into the presence of a king. So story time. I used to take Taekwondo. Who did not know that? Just a couple of you. Okay. I am a third degree black belt. Who did not know that? Just the same people? A couple people didn't know? Okay. Third degree black belt. Sometime I will stretch out for about an hour and prove it to you. But at this point, I would have to like stretch out for quite some time to be able to prove any actual ability. Um, yeah. So, so I am a third degree black belt. When you're, third, when, you're, when you're a third degree black belt, you're in it for a long time. You go, to, you go to lots of tournaments. You go to lots of events and things like that. It's all sorts of fun. Came in, came in second place at the, uh, the old world championships one time. That's pretty awesome. Not like for the actual like world championship, but like just in my division of like 15 people. I was better than 13 of them. So I'm better than at least 13 people at that time when I was that age, at that level of fitness. Which I'm still going to hold on to. Because that's all I have. But I remember when we went to the world championships one year, they had this big opening ceremony night. And they were having a master's ceremony where all of the people who had gotten their sixth degree black belt, not all of them, but several of the people who would gotten their sixth degree black belt were going to become masters. They were going to get this new title. And part of the ceremony, they went through this, this whole week of training, this whole week of kind of preparing yourself to become a master. But one of the last things they had to do is they all lined up on the stage and they faced the grandmaster, the grand poobah, and they, were, they had to do seven, I think it was, traditional Korean full bows. When I say full bow, I mean you're on your knees, your hands are on the ground, and then you lay down on your face. And then you stand back up. And then you do it again seven times. And it was around this time that I was sitting there thinking, like, like I, get, I get bowing as a sign of respect. I get that that becomes like replacing a handshake. I get that. It's more sanitary, I suppose. Less transference of disease. I get that. But there was something about watching people lay down, prostrate, ascribing honor to this person as they're saying, I am submitting to you. That I realized, wait, we do this for a person, a human, another fallen person, but but how does our posture change when we think about being in the presence of God? Right? Think, think about um, Joshua when, they, when they'd first seen Jericho and all of Israel's terrified of Jericho. This guy described as the commander of the army of the Lord comes up and he says, I'm here to help. And what does it say Joshua does? It says he falls face down on the ground. It's really hilarious if you watch the VeggieTale version. 
But seriously, it's like he falls down. He's like, I am not, I'm in the presence of somebody greater than me. And he falls down. How flippant are we about the posture that we take when we approach Christ? When we enter a time of worship? How intentional are we about the way that we act when we're in the presence of a king? If we, we need to teach ourselves to understand what it means for Christ to be a king. Not just, not just a priest, not just a prophet, not just all of these other things that are true of him, but a king. We need to learn to connect with this idea. And we need to learn how our posture should change when we enter into his presence. There's a reason that it says we lift up our hands or, or we fall on our knees or we fall on our face. There are reasons that the Bible describes these different postures that people take when they worship. There's a reason that I think there's something to the idea of raising our hands while we're singing. It's a, it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of saying, I'm holding nothing back. It's a, sign of, it's a sign of honor to this king. And I think that we need to be very intentional when we think about the way that we approach the presence of a king. So Jesus was born a king and should be recognized as a king. Second, Jesus was a king for all nations. This guy, these guys who are coming, and, and who knows how many of them are. Could have been, could have been three, got three presents. It just says multiple. So it could have been two guys, and one guy got to carry two things. It could have been a whole lot more. I don't want to shatter anybody's bubble if they're like, it had to have been three. But, sorry. So, so these guys did not know God. These guys were from another nation. These guys didn't have any like complete knowledge of what a Messiah was, what, what sin was, what God had been doing all along. The only thing they knew is that coming from the east, these guys were probably much like the dream interpreters that we saw in the book of Daniel uh, that were trying to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, they couldn't do it, so they called Daniel. He's like, oh, king, this is what it's going to be. This is how things are going to work. So, so these are probably similar types of people from a similar region in the world it doesn't mean they wouldn't know anything about the prophecies, right? Because, because for a while there, they're probably coming from where Babylon had been, somewhere around in there. Uh, they would have heard stories of these people that Babylon had captured hundreds of years before and brought there. They would have heard the things that these people were talking about. They probably, because they were concerned with knowing as much as they could about the religions of the world at the time, probably written a lot of these things down, though not completely, it kind of reminds us, it was Jeremiah 29 where, where when Jeremiah is encouraging those people who have been taken to Babylon, he says, while you're there, I want you to build houses. I want you to have families. I don't want you to, I don't want you to just sit there and think, we're going to get out soon. We're going to get out soon. He said, actually live a life where you are. Be very intentional about still being my people, even though I've taken you there. And then there's a verse Later on in the chapter, where he says, And when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'm going to bring you back. Think about that. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, God was saying, I am not just sending my people out of Israel as a means of punishing them. I'm also sending them out as missionaries. I'm also sending them out intentionally so that they can leave a mark where it is that I put them. In this case, in Babylon. 
And it may be that we're seeing some of the fruits of that when these guys are coming back looking for this king. They had heard something about this because Israel had been living with them as missionaries. But Jesus was the king for all nations. So these people weren't the chosen people. These people weren't Israelites. These were people from somewhere else that still God was showing some interest in. These are still people that the word of who Jesus was, was reaching. So he's a king for all the nations. And here's what's interesting. God moves heaven and earth, literally, to draw people to himself. Right? It keeps talking about how this star keeps moving. And kind of leading them to where they're supposed to go. They saw it rise here, so they started following it. And then it, and then it moved and it rested over where Jesus was. And the way this is described really sounds kind of, kind of peculiar. Like, that's not a thing that we tend to see. We don't tend to see, like stars, moving and leading us different places. Here's what I don't want us to be tempted to do. Don't try to science it. Right? Don't try to say, well, maybe it was a comet. Right? And God put this comet here, and the comet moved this way. And they kept following the comet, and then it was right before the comet was going to disappear. They're like, oh, so that's the house, because it's on the other. Don't try to science it. Maybe it was an angel. Maybe it was just a beam of light. Maybe God, in his sovereign power, decided to take a star and literally move it around in the sky to lead these guys to this place. That's not the point. The point is not, how did this happen? we got to understand the phenomenon that took place to lead these guys here. The point is that God is bringing these people to Christ. He is leading these people. He's drawing these people to himself by some miraculous means. These guys didn't just stumble upon Jesus. They weren't out looking for him. God said, hey, I've got a son. He's a king. He's right here. Come see him. I'm going to show you how to get there. That's how God works with us. God doesn't just wait for us to stumble upon, oh, look, I found salvation. That's not how it works. He says, you come to me. I'm going to get you here. I'm going to bring you here. I'm going to draw you in. So let us not just overlook this idea that a star moved and these people came. Let us be amazed at the idea that God would would do some sort of miraculous, never-before-seen thing to bring these people to his son so that these people could worship the new king. This was God's initiative. Next thing. To those who don't know Jesus, in this case Herod, the idea of his Kingship, his being royalty, is offensive because it interferes with our desires to place ourselves in authority. So Herod, and we'll see more about this next week. We didn't get into Herod's full reaction. We'll talk about that in a week. Um, Herod hears that there's this other king, and he he plays nice. Hey, why don't you tell me where this guy is so I can come worship him too? But what does it say? When he heard this, he was troubled. Like, he did not like to hear there's another king. Why? Because in his mind, he's the king. In his mind, he's in charge. In his mind, there's nobody with more authority than him in the area. He gets to make all the calls. 
And that's the way that sometimes we all feel too. We don't like the idea of Jesus being in charge because if Jesus is in charge, then I can't be. If Jesus is in charge, then I have no say in what happens to me next. It doesn't matter that I look both ways. If Jesus wants me to get hit by a car, I'm going to get hit by a car. That's a really morbid example. As I said that, I'm like, man, that's dark. It It doesn't matter that I walk carefully through the woods if I'm going to trip on a stick. I'm going to, that's not, still bad. They're all, they all involve pain and suffering. Maybe because that's how it feels when we lose control. I don't know. But seriously, the idea of another authority other than ourselves can be offensive. And to those of us who don't know and love Jesus, being told who he is ought to be. It ought to be something we don't like to hear. It ought to be something that would put us, push us away. Because if, if you don't know and love him, then you're saying, I've got this. I'm in control. I, I am in charge. I am the king of my own life. So to be told otherwise is really to say, be told you're wrong. That is not truth. That is, that's not a thing that I can let you continue to think. So, if you hear this and you're offended, it's because you don't know Christ. And that's what we're trying to talk to you about. We're trying to say, look, you need to know this guy. He's the king. He's worth knowing. But some people, like, okay, so here's the thing. Here's the question that I kept rolling around in my brain. If you're not in If you're claiming that you're not in Christ, shouldn't you be offended by everything that we say up here, right? That would make sense. That seems to be, there seems to be some correlation to that idea. So, if you're here and you're not offended, maybe God's already working in you. Even though you don't think you are in. Maybe you say, I have no idea. I'm on the fence. But you're not offended. I'm I'm thinking out loud right now. This is just me verbally processing. This is how I do this. Maybe he's already drawing you in like we just talked about. Maybe the fact that you're still here says something about the fact that God is actively working in your life. Maybe the fact that you can sit here week after week and hear the things that Daniel and I are saying and not be offended by it is because the Holy Spirit is already at work inside you. The Holy Spirit is already at work pulling you in and you just haven't admitted it to yourself yet. You think you're still in control. You think that you are still maintaining some separation, yet you're still here. And like, Everything in me is like, quit fighting it. You're here, just love it. Right? Obviously, it's not that you're hanging out because you just love my personality. Because I'm sure, to some, I could be obnoxious. If you were at my house last week during the Bama game, I'm sure I was. Unless you're a Bama fan... I thought I was fine too. A couple of people just left. Like third quarter, they're like, I don't want to be around this. Was it, the, was it already in the fourth? It was just before we would like locked in the win. 
I was still nervous when y'all left. So I was talking lots. But seriously, seriously. The word of God is offensive to those who aren't in Christ. Ask yourself, am I offended by what he's saying? And then analyze your own response. One last thing. One last thought. So just to kind of recap. Jesus was born a king, and we should recognize him as a king. He's a king for all nations. He wasn't just a king for this small nation of Israel. And God moves heaven and earth to bring people to himself. But those who don't know him, to hear of him is offensive. But for those of us who are in Christ, to worship him, we worship him at great cost to ourselves. I have no idea what myrrh is. I read a little bit. It's like, it's like it's a perfumey kind of thing. Yeah, I still don't know. Like I, still, I've never, I, I don't have a whole lot of myrrh just in the house. I do know that frankincense is apparently really expensive. You can ask my wife about that. Frankincense is like wicked expensive because it like only grows like there. Like in this one little spot in the world, that's the only place you can get frankincense. I learned, they, I learned these things. But I know what gold is. I know that gold's really expensive. So to hear that these guys are bringing very valuable things and just giving them to Jesus. Sure, we could talk about how they were giving him the, the money that he needs so that his family could afford to make this big trip that they're going to take next week where they, they kind of run and hide from Herod. And yeah, he was, it was all about God funding their trip. I don't want to focus on the specifics of what was being accomplished by them. Like, why does a baby need perfume, right? I mean, yeah, sometimes they stink, but still. It's only going to mask it for so long and you're going to run out of the stuff. So, so, so why are they doing that? Because, because they know that he is a king, they know that he is an authority figure, and they want to prove his worth in their lives by, by just letting go of things of great value, giving them to him because he deserves them. The more valuable a thing you give to somebody, the more value you are showing that you have for them. It's why it's so easy to shop at like Christmas and birthday times for people that you know and love. Because you know, oh, they're going to really like this. Or, oh, I want, to, I want to do something really nice for them. I want to get them something very valuable. Because they are very valuable to me. So, so we, we give a lot of ourselves. We sacrificially give to those who are of great value to us. So serving our king, so serving Jesus, is not cheap. It's not like when you join the church, it's like the, this is the discount plan. Forget, like, no, this is an expensive thing. And I don't just mean financially. I don't mean it costs a lot of money. We're going to make you pay a ton of money to come join our church because that's absolutely not the case. But what I can say is when you finally let go of your control, when you finally say no more, I'm not going to hold back anymore, you have, you have everything. 
everything is very expensive. All of my, all of my time, all of my goals, all of my focus, anything that I have, I am willing to use for you should you ask of it. If you, ask, if you ask for my car, you can have my car. If you ask for my house, you can have my house. If you ask for my job, you can have my job. I, would, I am willing to give you anything because we ascribe great value to Jesus. He's, he can have any and everything of ours. Because, because the only reason that we have these things is because he has been gracious enough to let us have them for a time. Kind of, kind of float us alone, if you will. So where our, our stuff is shows what we value. I'm not saying you can't have a car or shoes. I'm not. But what I'm saying is you can tell by the way you sacrificially serve Christ whether or not he is valuable to you. So how valuable is Christ to you? How do you react when you're in his presence? Do you behave differently? Do you say, oh, let me give you this. I have this gift for you. Or do you hold back and treat him as another guy? Because, because these, these guys who, who are from another land, who maybe didn't really fully understand who it was they were coming to worship, didn't really necessarily understand all this stuff, worshipped him like a king in the way that we ought to. So are we going to worship our king the way that we should, the way that he deserves? Let's pray.